Before we begin, just giving you an update on our new subscription. It's called Dave McWilliams Plus on Apple. You just double click, you get no ads, and you get me and John, pure and simple. And Mac, you get early access to episodes. Did you know that? Sure. My day is made. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. We've got a really special one. It's a conversation I had with Fintan O'Toole, you know, maybe Ireland's premier public intellectual at the Dorky Book Festival on his book, We Don't Know Ourselves, Personal History of Ireland Since 1958. If you haven't read it, go out and get it. It's an extraordinary piece of work, of journalism, of political analysis, of economic analysis, of sociological, of literary weight. It's, it's great. And Fintan's one of the good guys. And... Uh, Here's the chat, myself and Fintan too. So Fintan, I said we were gonna we're gonna do the six the six events. It's probably the easiest way. By the way, the book is extraordinary. It's fantastic. There are there are gems in the story. Uh, I love the I love the, uh, the the bloom being buried halfway between the cemetery and your estate. <laughs> it's really really. I mean, it's it's, the, the, it's full of it's full of gems. Let's let's get right into it. Right, we've got an hour. Let's get right into it. We're going to start. We're going to kick off with the first one. You say is late fifties, fifty eight. The year we start. T K Whitaker. Yeah, yeah. Let's go. So there are two huge events in 1958. One is my birth, obviously, and then, and then the other one... The other one... No, I mean, the, the, the really key moments, really, that sets off the whole story of, of the transformation of Ireland over the course of, of my lifetime and many of your lifetimes is, is, is this extraordinary civil servant called T.K. Whitaker, whom everybody knows about, you know. Um, but Whitaker saw a cover of, there was a, a satirical magazine called Dublin Opinion. And it had a cartoon which kind of said a map of Ireland saying like property for sale, owners leaving, you know. And he, he just thought we ha- ha- something has to be done here. Um, and he, Whitaker, you have to remember, was a, a Catholic from Northern Ireland. He was an Irish speaker. He was in many ways a kind of conservative nationalist. Yeah. You know, he wasn't a natural revolutionary. Um, 1958 was also the year where one of my favourite novels was published, which is Giuseppe de Lampedusa's The Leopard, that great Italian novel. And it has that fantastic line in it. It's set during the Italian Revolution, you know, and the, the Duke is the uh, a central character, and his, his nephew, whom he loves, is going off to join the revolutionaries. And he says, how can you do this? You're betraying the king, you're betraying everything we stand for. And, and, and the Unfula says, you don't understand. In order for things to stay the same, things have to change. Yeah. And that was Whittaker, you know, that in order to keep a sense of the Ireland, which remember is still a very raw, young state, but it could not continue to survive as an independent yeah. entity with the protectionist policies that had defined it. Uh, and so Whittaker publishes a document called Economic Development. Can you think of a more boring title? And I've done it a, loads of times, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's a, it's a grey yeah, yeah, yeah. book, 
And fascinatingly, it's published under his own name by the Department of Finance. So, Ooh. and the reason for this, and this was his courage. He's a young guy, you know, he's a genius. He's got, you know, the top of the civil service tree, but he publishes it under his own name. Why? Because if the government, if there's a bad reaction, the government say, it's that yeah, fellow yeah, Whitaker. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no, this yeah, was never yeah. an official document. This was never. And what it just, it just goes through very patiently the state of the economy. You know, that's a really shocking document to read. Yeah. Because I, you think things like cheese, you know, like, okay, it's an agricultural economy, fine. Right. Yeah. Huge dairy herds. How much cheese do we export? 35,000 pounds worth of cheese. So let's go through all the you details. Know, it's like, you know, it's just like we can't even make goddamn cheese. Yes. You know, we export. And I don't know if some of you of my age will remember how appalling Irish cheese was in our childhood. Remember that? Look orange. at the heads nodding. The poor you know, <laughs> do you remember the orange stuff that tasted like soap? I mean, that was, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and you look at now, I mean, cheese would be a very interesting way of thinking about the transformation of Ireland, how wonderful. But, but anyway, so it was Whittaker's. And Whittaker basically just says, the game is up, folks. Yeah. You know, and we have to open up this economy. And it's a really interesting moment where he says, uh, they set the target for economic growth at 2%. Modest. Well, he knew that, he said, you just do a few simple things, you're going to get more than 2%. Yeah. Um, because, like, you're growing from such a low base. Yeah. The base is so low that if you look at the table of Irish exports and Irish imports in those years, in the first five exports is horses. Wow. And in the first five imports is horses. And it's the same horses going to horse races in England. <laughs> that, that's how small the economy is. That's but the, horse, the yeah. horses going to Aintree and coming back feature as That's major imports and exports, you know. Yeah. So, so you can get growth really pretty easily just by doing a few sensible things. But he, he knew they would exceed the 2%, but, but his point was, we, we're so depressed that you have to set a target that you will exceed. So it was the opposite of Stalinism. Stalinism was like, you, you know, this was like, set a really low target because then people will feel good about, about, about getting over it. Stalinism. No, but it's interesting, you, you forget the 1950s, 500,000 people emigrated in the 1950s alone to Britain. To Britain. To Britain, not yeah. anywhere else. Yeah. To Britain, to half a million people. And my dad used to tell me around here, around Dorky, Dunleary, yeah. that the salaries from the RAF kept the place going. So the RAF had big, big production yeah. facilities after the war in the West Midlands. Yeah. And he said, he said particularly it was always noticeable during the Easter lily, uh, at Easter Sunday, that the, most of these ladies were bought with wages that were actually from the RAF. Wow. Which is kind of ironic at the time. But, yeah. but, but, so the country was actually imploded. I mean, it really was. And, and exactly as you say, David, like it's, this is not a, an abstract thing, right? It's, it's demographic. Uh, by the end of the 1950s, there are fewer than 3 million people left in, 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 in the 26 counties, you know. And it's the young people leaving um, after the war. I, I listed in the book, I just found my father's address book, you know, and it's all his siblings, you know, and it's Birmingham, yeah. it's different parts of London, it's, you know, Coventry. Uh, his sister, he has just somewhere in Australia. <laughs> I think it's like very sad, isn't it? You know, but it's, uh, like there's nobody left except him. And the only reason he did emigrate, he'd gone to get the papers for Canada. He had an uncle yeah. in Canada, he was going off to Canada. And my mother agreed to marry him, and he just he didn't know his look. Like, she was way out of his league, you know, uh, in terms of looks. And, you know, she, she was beautiful, actually, my mother was, you know. And, and, but it's interesting what you're saying about the army. Again, it's just these little details, you know. The reason my mother agreed to dance with him, they met in the Metropole, you know. They would watch, she told me this, the, 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 the girls would watch the fellas coming in, and you'd look at their suit, you know. Because, oh no, you look at their gloves, because she said every fella could, would have one good suit. Yeah. That wouldn't tell you an awful lot, you know, because they'd go to the, the yeah. everybody would go to a tailor at some point and they could wear the suit to the dance. But it was the gloves, she said, I didn't realize that a nice pair of gloves would, would make the fellow interesting. And my father had a pair of 
British Army driver's gloves that his older brother had given him from the Second World War, which I think had been worn at the Battle of El Alamein. Uh, this is very were, impressive. They were sort of leather with kind of mesh, you know, and they looked, they looked and he was the man. You know? He was the man. So it was the Battle of El Alamein that made my, my parents <laughs> meet. <laughs> but, you know, the, this, this massive, and the, the depression it created, you know, there's a fantastic line in a Tom Murphy play from, from that time, you know, very bitter play called Whistle in the Dark, set in Coventry, of course, you know. And one of them says, and excuse the language, but one of the guys says, uh, the economy of Ireland is fucked since the demand for St. Patrick's Day badges dried up. <laughs> 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 it's that sense of like, yeah, it's, it's you know, there, there's nothing, you know. And, and so, and, and also it was a bloody awful place. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, there's been a lot of revisionism since, but all yeah, the 50s yeah, yeah, were yeah. fantastic. If you had a lot of money in this place, it was fantastic because property was really cheap. Servants were very, and people had, you know, uh, people working their house, you know, but for the most people, it was terrible. And, you know, the, this, this, the repression, you know, so uh, the, the weekend I was born, in February 1958, the Dublin Theatre Festival was cancelled. Uh, why was it cancelled? Because John Charles McQuaid, whom we will come on to talk about, who was the kind of moral ruler of Ireland, the Archbishop of Dublin, had indicated his displeasure that there were works by James Joyce and Sean O'Casey uh, going to be in the thing. He didn't make a speech or give a sermon. He just kind of, I don't know, he raised his eyebrow or something. Well, yeah, yeah. And they, they immediately cancelled the entire festival. It's extraordinary. You know, and, and they didn't, they were laughing stock around the world, you know. But that was okay because we were the purest Catholic nation. Yeah, the best. That was the, the compensation. Version. That was the compensation. And yet you have this guy, Whittaker. I'll tell you, this. Roddy Doyle told me a great story about Whittaker, which I think is a gem. And it describes the type of person he must have been. The fact that he died at 100, yeah. not that long ago. Yeah. Uh, that Roddy Doyle, I think, is from Kilbarrick. Yeah. And uh, there was a shop. So they're a housing estate, and you know the housing estate's built in the 50s. The housing estate, then there'll be like a shop, there'll be a hairdresser, and there'll be a, a shop and, and whatever in the estate. And every summer, the people who ran the shop, who were called the Hickeys, uh, went on their holliers to Arklow. And a man came in to run the shop in Kilbarrick in the 50s, and he was a gentleman called T.K. Whitaker. He was their cousin. So think about this the chief economist of the country was running. <laughs> Right? The local spa, right? Wow. Uh, For two weeks every summer to give the cousin a dig out. Incredible. But it shows you he was in tune with the people. He could see what was going on. And, and if, you, if you read economic development, I said it's, it's kind of depressing sometimes, but it's brilliantly written. It's written in language that everybody can understand. Yeah. You know, and he says in it, you know, it has language like saying, the talk of every village in Ireland is emigration. You know, it's that, it's that sort of tone that's in it. You know, we know what people are talking about. We know what people are feeling. Um, and, but isn't it fascinating that none of the politicians could manage that tone? Why? Because, I mean, this place was still run by the elites which had emerged from the 1960s. Yeah, the revolutionaries. Yeah. You know, the, the person who supported Whitaker and made Whitaker possible was Sean Lamass. Yeah. And Lamass deserves incredible credit too, you know. But, but, I mean, Lamas had been in the 1916 Rising. He's the young whippersnapper in 1958 yeah. who's kind of yeah, yeah, coming yeah. along. Eventually, De Valera is going to go, and Lamas is the one who's going to come behind him. And it was Lamas who basically said to Whitaker, I've got your back. Yeah. But nonetheless, he's still it's not Lamas. Yeah. But it's not Lamas who's going out and t- saying these things because he's still worried about, you know, this might well, go badly. It's, 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 it's the... The, the civil servants. But it's funny about the civil servants. Uh, years ago when I worked in the central bank, I'd be writing briefs for the governor and there was an awful expression that you knew would torpedo your career. And it wasn't that that was good or bad or indifferent or appalling when you'd write the, 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 the thing. You cut back on the side, it would be the worst thing was unwise. <laughs> and if you had written something unfucking wise right? And, and seriously, and unwise meant that you in the civil service, there was two types of people. There was people with horns and people with halos. And if you developed horns because you'd written something at the age of 23 that was unwise, you were gone. Yeah. yeah. You had to. Yeah. So Whittaker's, my point is, he's coming from that culture. Yeah. And he's trying to see an Ireland that is a different version of itself. Yeah. Okay. And what, what he thinks is, um, you know, that, and of course, this is in a way the story of the book, I'm trying, I'm trying to kind of tell us, which is, 
in a way, the one thing he's wrong about, right, is that um, he thinks you can have all this economic change and still have kind of conservative Catholic ideals. Yes. Now, he's right for a very, very long time. You know, like in a way you could say what's extraordinary is not that it all changes, but that just how long it takes actually, you know, that, yeah. that, that arguably the rest of the 20th century, so, you know, you, you get 42 years arguably out of it, <laughs> uh, out of this extraordinary change. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I tried to interview him before he died around the time of the austerity stuff, you know, and talk about unwise. He, he was a very gracious man, and he was a lovely man to talk to, but he, he said, um, I asked him about the austerity and, and uh, bailing out the banks, and I said, well, would you do an interview with that? And he said, well, I would have very interesting things to say about it, but I think it would be unwise. He said, he's, because... He's <laughs> unwise, I'm telling you. So it wasn't a, just he, me. He had a sense of propriety. He didn't want to, you know, he thought, well, of course he knew what I'd be up yeah. to, you know. This, this, you know, you'd be using it to get against the government. But, but that's one of the fascinating themes in the book is this duality, this yeah. double speak, right? So on the one hand, and and, and it, it, it's funny when you when you when you lay it out in the book, because lots of us forget that m much of our certainly teenage lives and adult lives, early lives, was inhabiting this double world, you know, this yeah. world of, of moral compromise, of kind of whatever you do, say nothing. You're aware this is kind of nonsense, but clearly it is the dominant perception, you might be unwise to yeah. go out and suggest it. So we move from the 50s and, 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 and Whittaker, and of course the, yeah. uh, the, the, the birth in February of 1958. And then there's a lovely little passage about McQuaid. So I mentioned John Charles McQuaid, and, and people probably know, I mean, he was, I mean, he'd been involved in writing the, night, the Constitution in 1937. Uh, he was the undisputed ruler of Catholic Ireland. Uh, he was this small man, very beautiful eyes, I remember, these kind of dark, blue, dark uh, uh, brown eyes. Um, I always think of him in terms of uh, he had a telescope, so he had this beautiful mansion in um, Kalini, which is up yeah. for sale now, isn't it? Yeah. No, uh, and he had his telescope, which the rumour was that it was used for spying on courting couples. Um, <laughs> Uh, and he had a micro, he, he had a, um, a magnifying glass. There's a letter in his arch, a copy of the letter in his archive to Vivian de Valera, who was uh, son of Eamon de Valera. Vivian was running the Irish Press, which was one of the, the main newspapers. And there's a letter from McQuaid uh, saying, um, Dear Major de Valera, he'd been in the Irish Army, Dear Major de Valera, um, I was very disturbed to find that when I studied uh, an advertisement for women's underwear in your newspaper with my magnifying glass, I could see the outline of the Mons Veneris. <laughs> and so you have this guy who's like, look, you know, but, but, but he's the, he's the all-seeing eye, you know, of, of That's that Ireland. That's extraordinary. I'm trying to get my head around that. <laughs> I mean, I tell the, the other story, I mean, you know, you could go on with McQuaid stories, but, you know, uh, someone, there was hospitals requests was the sort of most innocent program on the, on, on the radio. You know, people would, you know, ring in for, you know, Johnny's having his appendix out. Would you play? Would you, know, you play? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, a request for play, the appendix. Play, play a waltz. <laughs> but somebody requested um, the Cole Porter song, Always true to you, darling, in my fashion. And, um, you know, the phone... <laughs> goes from the palace, and it was always the palace is on. Even the use of the word palace, you know, it just kind of replaced monarchy. Yeah, the yeah. palace is on, saying, His Grace <laughs> would like to make it clear that that song is not to be played again. True to you in my fashion? You know, this is encouraging sexual immorality. No. You know, and so the, the next time there was a request, they played the instrumental version. <laughs> I mean, and this, is, this is all absolutely true. So anyway, so, so McQuaid had this kind of extraordinary monarchical presence, really. Um, and so the parish priest died. I was 10, this would be 68, and the parish priest dies. I'm growing up in Crumlin, which, you know, is a, a kind of corporation housing estate, which was kind of the wilds then. It's hard oh, to think yeah. of now. Like it's three miles from the GPO, probably, you know. <laughs> but it was regarded as, like, out the, there. the savage place yeah. out there, you know. Um, and the PP died, and he, he had been a friend of McQuaid's, and they'd been at Manute together or something, anyway. And uh, so there was to be a solemn requiem Latin mass 
which, by the way, was magnificent. I mean, I remember getting white gloves. You know, they suddenly the gloves. white gloves appeared from nowhere that we were to use for, and oh, candles. But anyway, I'm walking up in the morning to, you know, prepare for this theatrical event. And, I mean, I swear this is true, but it, so I'm just walking up the road, there's this huge Hillman Hunter, which was um, McQuaid's car, uh, parked outside the parish priest's house. And I'm walking up the road, and it's very early in the morning. It's like 7 o'clock. It's like nobody was up at 7 o'clock in Ireland then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, so there's, there's two feet sticking out of the side of the car like this. <laughs> and the chauffeur is kneeling on the footpath, polishing the shoes. And as I'm coming up, I think, oh, it's just the, the shoes are there. He's, it's, why is he kneeling there? And then I realized, no, the, the archbishop's, or the, his feet are in the shoes. He's sitting in his car like this, with his, and he's having his shoes polished, but the guy kneeling on the pavement. You know? And I was 10, and even then I thought, is that what Jesus did? Was that, was that, I, that just didn't feel quite... Doesn't look like Mary Magdalene really, to me. Yes. You know. uh, and, you know, but, but, but nevertheless, I, I remember putting that aside and, you know, because the mass was so impressive and, and then he came back into the sacristy, you know, and he talked to us, you know, and I, I really, I, I, I'm sure the only equivalent is like being in a medieval, being a medieval peasant, you know, and, and the king has come, you know, because it had that yeah. both power and sanctity, you know. And I'd never before or since felt this, I'm completely known and enclosed in this world and how wonderful it is. And, you know, he's felt so, such a sense of sanctity. And I suppose I, I look back and I think, you know, that was, of course, the power the church had. You know, yeah. it was a spiritual power as well. But it, it, and now looking back, I know at that time, so, so just before that, so the, the church was very close to the children's hospital in Crumlin. The, um, the chaplain, Catholic chaplain in, in um, Crumlin was a guy called Paul McGuinness. And, um, not the manager of U2. Not the manager of U2. McGuinness, I should make G-E-N-N-I-S, McGuinness. Um, be interesting, wouldn't it? If you, if I, was, I was about to say, when you said McGuinness. Subsequently, he discovered a rock band. Exactly. <laughs> it didn't happen. But, but, but McGuinness had, um, so Scotland Yard had got a roll of film which had been sent to a processor in London with this guy's name on it. It was the photograph of genitals of little girls from the hospital wow. in Crumlin, right? And, you know, it just tells you the way Ireland worked, right? So, so Scott and I think, oh, right, there's a child abuser. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have evidence here. Yeah. It's, his name is on the photo. I mean, yeah. you know, please return so we have, to we have the full Father Paul McGuinness, you know? Um, so what happens? No, that the, the uh, Scotland Yard got onto the commissioner of the police of the police of the Guard of Shikona. The commissioner of the Guard of Shikona goes straight to McQuaid with the film and says, "I'm terribly sorry, you know, your, 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 your grace, your grace. I'm really sorry to raise this, but like, would you deal with this?" Wow. And gives him the film, and and you know, again, so McQuaid kept very good records, and he has you know written down, he writes down all this, you know, and and how. He's, you know, the commissioner behaved properly, uh, and he had called in um, McGinnis, and McGinnis told him that he was, he was just very curious. He didn't, you know, he'd grown up with brothers, and he didn't know about any of this, and that he, uh, he told him that this was perfectly fine, uh, it was understandable, and he was going to get a good Catholic doctor to talk to him and explain to him about genitalia and sex and stuff. And, and McGinnis went on abusing children in, in, in... All through the 70s. All through the 70s. And then he was replaced by a guy called Ivan Payne, who, wow. who you may have heard. You know, so like the, you know, the, the hospital, like just 10 minutes from the church, like it was a major center of, of, of child abuse. And, and um, McQuaid, this thing, McQuaid knew about Guinness, he knew about Payne, he knew it was a The priest, amazing thing is he you know, recorded this. He wrote it all, wrote down, it all down, you know. As if he just, would be forever untouchable. Yeah, completely. That's the... That's exactly... Yeah. And so in the, we're talking the late 70s, they're still feeling they're untouchable. And quite rightly feeling they're untouchable, because that's what happens. You know, is if there's a scandal, the police go to the archbishop. They don't go to the courts. They don't, you know, they don't prosecute these guys. And, and yet the country is opening up. And yet, so we have this nexus of power. It's a, it's a bit like when you read any Soviet accounts of Brezhnev. Yeah. Because, you know, so Brezhnev is ostensibly the all-powerful leader 
and yet the people are just laughing behind his back and they're trying yeah. to figure out a new exactly. way. Exactly. And this is going on. I think, I think you put that exactly right, you know, and I think that parallel is, 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 is probably very accurate, right? which is that if you think social change is possible or a big change is possible, you confront things. Mm-hmm. But if you think these people are always going to be in yeah. power, and the church, after all, has been in power for like a couple of thousand years, so, you know, why not? You, know, you can't imagine that it's never going to be the way it is. And they, in turn, can control the state. You know, they can put limits to what's yeah. possible, what's sayable. What you do is, well, some very brave people do confront it, you know. And, I mean, for me, the real, real heroes, you know, are those feminists, you know, in the, in the early 1970s, you know, who, who, who went on the Late Late Show and... Yeah you know, did the contraceptive train, you know, because they were just shameless. They were shameless hussies, you know. And God, if there was ever a country that needed shameless hussies, you know, it was, it was this place. And, they, you know, the, so there were very brave people. You can imagine David Norris going on the Lake Lake Show, the only homosexual in Ireland, you know. Uh, you know, it wasn't Which amazing. kind of makes homosexuality difficult. Well, you know, it, it showed the church was right because there was only one homosexual in yeah, Ireland. Yeah, and then yeah. once you started talking about it, they're all at it now, you know. I mean, so, you know, maybe John Charles McQuaid was absolutely right about this but this is I suppose the story I'm trying to tell in this was I suppose if you go back like how does it collapse so quickly it can only collapse because it's already rotten from the inside and so it's not that you know everybody's believing all of this stuff and thinks it's all yeah. great everybody knows about about child abusing priests everybody knows about the schools everybody knows all this stuff, stuff but but we pretend not to know it we we, we dodge around it yeah. my my two favorite examples of this Mentality. Well, the slightly more um, cheerful ones are uh, the Connie Dodgers. Anybody ever heard of the Connie Dodger? I, I was doing an event in Ennis uh, there uh, earlier in the year, and the woman, the stage manager, said, "My granny is the woman who did the Connie Dodger." The Connie and Dodger. The Connie Dodger was a unique Irish um, uh, item of confectionery. Right. So the the Bishop of Cork was called Cornelius Lucy. And he was, he was a real, himself and McQuaid were like that. They were, you know, the, the real arch conservatives. And so he was called Connie, of course, in Cork. Yeah. Uh, uh, and Connie insisted on a particularly strict interpretation of the, Lent, the, the rules for Lent, which was that you were allowed to have one meal and two collations, was the term. And a collation was like a, a biscuit. <laughs> so this woman's granny in Cork, brilliant, the baker, invented what was called the Connie Dodger, which was a biscuit that size. <laughs> and I think, you know, that's fantastic. It that's keeps brilliant. the rules. It doesn't confront anybody, you know? Everybody is strictly behaving as they're supposed to behave. But the Connie Dodger is one of them. And the other one I absolutely love, and again, this is a heroic tribute to the women of Ireland, you know. Um, Ireland in the 1970s had by far the highest rates of menstrual problems in the known universe. I mean, nobody had ever come across before, you know, the the inability of Irish women to control their menstrual cycles. Like, I don't know what was wrong with you all, but you just couldn't... couldn't. (laughs) Of course, we do know what was wrong, right? Which was, so this became international science was thinking, what's going on in Ireland? Is there a different moon or something? It's kind of irregular cycles. And of course, the, what was going on was, of course, that you could not prescribe the pill. The pill was banned, as, as were condoms, remember? You, could, you know, condoms? Um, but you could prescribe the pill as a cycle regulator. That was the phrase used. I thought initially, I thought it was something to do with the Tour de France, but no. Um, <laughs> you know, so, and, and again, of course, this was, this was a certain privilege. You, you had to be well-connected enough to know somebody who knew somebody yeah. who knew the doctor who would say, oh yes, your menstrual cycles were, were irregular. There's a fabulous list I found of, of the, the symptoms, you know, which was like being, being too fat, being too thin, um, <laughs> being too hairy, not having enough hair. Like, you know, you could get you know, like, every single possible thing. You could say, oh, this is a menstrual problem. Um, I think you need this pill. I love it. And then, you, of course, you also had to have a chemist, you know. But there were, I mean, chemists would question women. I mean, they would say, all right, why are you getting this? You know, is it, is it as a cycle regulator or is it as a contraceptive? Now, the irony is, of course, that a huge number of these women are Catholic teachers and Catholic nurses. The entire Catholic system would collapse if they weren't doing this, right? Because they're married women. As this had been solved, of course, which was married women had lost their jobs, of course, when they got married, but we're getting liberal now. We sort of yeah. allow them to keep their jobs. 
You, you have Ireland is kind of expanding. These services are expanding. The church wants to keep control of them. Uh, so, you know, the entire system would collapse if those women were going on maternity leave every yeah. year. You know, so, so you have to have a system which allows which, everybody to pretend there's one thing happening and something else is really happening. And this is, this is the, the... But this is the essence, isn't it? That at a constant level, there is not just hypocrisy, but an extraordinary creative opacity. Creative opacity is a brilliant description of it. And, you know, but it I is creative. I wouldn't have been unwise if I came up with that in 23. <laughs> you, <laughs> you know, but it is creative, you know. And, uh, you know, this is the sort of odd thing about it, that I think it is linked to the extraordinary creativity of the culture, you know. That it's, it's, it, it's a culture which, maybe going back to colonial times, you know, has got incredibly used to, you know, if you confront power, they'll crush you. Yeah. So you can do two things. You can feck off which is the main thing, you know, get out of the place. Or you can learn to live in a world where... Uh, John McGahern, the great John McGahern, the great novelist, said, I remember telling me a great story, but when he went to live in Leitrim, Mohill, he lived in a really remote uh, Leitrim, and um, one of the neighbours after a few weeks said to him, John, you're not going to Mass. And John said, no, no, I, no, I, I don't go. I said, well, why don't you go, John? And John said, well, you know, I don't believe, and I'd, I'd feel a hypocrite if I went. And, and says to him, he says, but you're John, none of us believe. We just go to see the other hypocrites. <laughs> and, and it's sort of brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, no, it is brilliant. It is brilliant. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. So, so in the book, we, 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 move, we move on to another event, which is Muhammad Ali. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know, I just tried to tell the story in the book, but it's just a really way of trying to talk about how kind of... Because he was the most famous man in the world, the biggest superstar ever, represents, you know, everything. He's the man, he, he goes to prison, he's the civil rights, he changes religion. He is the global superstar. There's never been a bigger uh, uh, superstar. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and, and, and so it's, it's very interesting business about... So uh, the story I tell is like my, my, my father adored Muhammad Ali more than he adored me or, you know, yeah. like he just loved... I, I remember, and it was very shocking. I mean, I remember hearing him use the word beautiful about a man, you know, and that was really terrible. I used to say, he's so beautiful. <laughs> and my father had been a boxer. He was an Irish junior champion boxer. He loved bo- wow. boxing. was a big Absolutely. kind of... He was a tough guy, you know. He was a little man, but he was... Tough, Always the know. scariest. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, geez, you wouldn't take on my father. Geez, he, was, he was fierce. But, you know, he, he, he loved boxing, the history yeah. of boxing, everything about it. And he just thought, you know, this man was just sensational. And then he also loved his stance against the Vietnam War and his courage in going to jail and, you know, all that stuff. And so Ali arrives in Dublin in, in 1972. 
And my father was a bus conductor, and he's, so he's on the bus, um, I think it's the Kilturnan route, one of those you know, ones that went up the foothills, and a scary Kilturnan. First bus out, you know. Yeah. And he's looking out, there's nobody really around much, you know. They would collect a few people, but they're going out. And uh, he sees this sight, you know, which is these big black men running. Well, sir, anybody running for Sark, that's, that's yeah, enough. Like, that's, that would yeah. be the most exotic event of your day anyway. <laughs> and then these huge, beautiful black men running. And of course, he realizes one of them is Muhammad Ali. You know, it's Muhammad Ali and, and his the crew. entourage, you know, <laughs> in their white tracksuits, you know, <laughs> running up the hill. And he stops the bus, you know, and... and uh, of course he does. Of course he does, you know. <laughs> and he says, you know, do you want to get on, you know? And, 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 uh, and Muhammad Ali gets on the bus, you know. And there's a few people who are half asleep, you know, and I can't imagine that. And, uh, and they have a big, you know, and Muhammad says, I don't have the fare, I didn't bring my money, my wallet with me, it's in the hotel, and they have this kind of chat. And I said, oh, for you, we'll make an exception, you know. He says, well, we'll take you up the hill. And I said, oh, no, no, I've got, got to fight this big guy, you know, I better, I better get back and uh, running. You know, they have this, and, you know, That's my father just came home that day, I mean, the glowing, you know, like, just this encounter, you know, this, this idea that this had happened. Um, but it's a, it's a fascinating little moment because what do we do in Ireland? So it's about race and ethnicity and all those kind of things which will become very important as the place changes. But what we do is, of course, find his Irish roots. Of course we do. You know, yeah. Um, of and, course you do. You know, like, you just, you know, we have to assimilate everything to us. We don't really just, so JFK, of course, JFK's visit in 63 had been the big kind of moment of this. But, you know, it's this thing of, and of course we did later with Obama. Oh, yeah. I think very uncomfortably. Like, the first black president of America was, ah, yeah, but he's really Irish, you know? I, I mean, know, I know. You know, like, but we do, we do this with Ali. And, and so I quote a thing in the book. I found this thing, you know, from the Clare Champion or something. But, well, of course, you know, he's one of the famous O'Grady's. Um, <laughs> like, um, you know, and, he, and they go through, like, O'Grady, who was master of the Clare Hunt. <laughs> and, um, and Cornelius O'Grady, who was the Fianna Fáil parliamentary secretary to the minister for something I in 1940. <laughs> you know, and then there's this other, you know, Mohammed O'Grady. You yeah, know? Yeah, 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 exactly. But, but it's a very interesting moment because, because Ali is really furious. I mean, he's really angry. Because he's in that phase where he's, he's changed his bloody name to get away from what he thinks of as slavery. Yeah. You know? He knows he has white... Uh, ancestors, but he assumes that he's a product of rape. I mean, which, which of course, is you know true of so many uh, of, of African American people. You know, uh, as it happens, it, oddly, this wasn't true. I mean, it's actually a much more moving story. I mean, his his O'Grady great grandfather was uh, you know married a free black woman in, in in Louisiana. You know, which was 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 unusual, or in Kentucky rather. Um, but he thought that this was a slave name. You know, and that was his whole Cassius, so, Clay, whole Cassius Clay thing. Was, That's why he changed yeah. that. And, he, and when they started saying, oh, you're one of the O'Grady's, he thought, you know, you really? You know, yeah, you're yeah. trying to Don't relabel story. me. <laughs> and the Irish thing is totally innocent and stupid. And, you know, but, but then he, the way he handles it, he was such a brilliant man, you know, and he's, he's asked in an RTE interview where they said, you know, and, um, you, know, you know, the O'Grady's, and, and he said... Uh, he just says, uh, let's not talk about that. He said, there was a lot of sneaking around in them days. <laughs> and of course, then there was, oh, he's talking about sex. Oh, Jesus, let's not talk yeah, about yeah. that. <laughs> and they just showed up. You know. And as he was brilliant, I just see, he realizes, this is how I shut these people yeah, up. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll hint that if you want to talk about me, we might have to talk about sneaking around. You know, so that, that. But, but also, I suppose, his, his, his kind of coming to Ireland is a certain moment because yeah. nobody ever came here. Like, I remember, you know, Muhammad Ali, my, my dad and your dad shared this uh, obsession with boxing and the rumble in the jungle happened about two that. years later. Yeah. I think it was on Halloween of 1974. Yeah. And my dad uh, was in the Congo and because they needed to get it for American primetime TV at nine o'clock in America, they fought That's at three in the morning. Yeah. And it was the first time we were ever allowed up late after about 10 o'clock was to watch this thing. But also my dad went down to Eddie Totterdell's uh, TV hire and rented a color TV. Wow. Wow. We all, the whole road came into the McWilliams' kitchen to watch the rumble in the jungle on the color TV. The worst thing was I came back from school, national school the next day, hoping to watch Tom and Jerry on the color TV, and it was was gone. gone. (laughs) It was given back to Totterdell's. The tragedy of your life. The tragedy of my life. Back into the black and white world. But... The, the, the key is what you're saying is 
Ali arriving again is a moment. Yeah. Because it's it's a big international superstar coming here. And it, it also forces us, I mean, how, in an incredibly awkward, stupid way to think about what's, what's Irish-American, right? If, yeah. if uh, JFK is Irish-American, that's fine, but could, is, is Muhammad Ali an Irish-American? And, then, and, what, and this coincides, with, the reason I, I sort of tell the story, well, apart from it being a good story itself, but of course, this is also the lead up to joining the European Union, you know? Where we're having to think about Irishness in this new context, you know, um, and you know, the, but I, I remember as a kid, you know, like that. So not long before Ali came, Charles de Gaulle had suddenly resigned as as president of France. And where did he go? He goes to Sneem. <laughs> he turns up in Kerry, you know, and it's just like, what is going on here, yeah. you know? And then they thought, oh well, it's, you know, everybody loves Ireland. What it was about, of course, was that he. he there was a French presidential election. He knew that if he stayed in France, he would be asked about his views or he'd have to get involved. And he looked, looked from as far as he was concerned, like, the place where they won't find yeah, me. Yeah, but nobody will find places, you know, <laughs> So he goes to Kerry. But in the course of this then, he reveals that, you know, he's a romantic, you know, and he says, maybe I was drawn to Ireland by the fact that my great-great-grandmother oh, no. was, you know, <laughs> a McCartan from County Down, you know. And... So I remember as a kid thinking, so Muhammad Ali's Irish and Charles de Gaulle is Irish. Like, so it means everybody can be Irish. And, and I, it's a kid's thing, but actually it's become true, isn't it, hasn't it? You know, that actually this sort of idea that it's a very capacious kind of nationality, you know, uh, because of the history of migration. Yeah, yeah you know? absolutely. Uh, it, it actually does contain all this kind of stuff. And the fear at the time, the cultural fear at the time would be, if we sort of admit this as well, it'll all go. It'll mean nothing. So you get a kind of reaction to this, which is sort of, let's hold on to the Catholic thing, because that's our, that's our brand, you know, and the nationalist thing. And of course, you've got the troubles going on, and all that stuff going on. So we sort of avoid this, but, but, but being let into the common market. And by the way, we were let in. I mean, there was no question that Ireland would have got into uh, the, the common market as it was at the time if Britain wasn't joining. You know, we were an adjunct. There was no way, you think? No way. Absolutely okay. no way. And it's, it's such an irony now, isn't it, yes. that we've been left with this, this great legacy of Europeanness in, and Britain's tragically losing it, you know. But, I mean, that's completely the case, you know. We were, we were so poor when we just didn't reach those levels. I mean, we, we had yeah. less than, well, 60%, wasn't it? Of, we were giving of, back colour TVs. <laughs> yeah, we you know, yeah. <laughs> But that's, that in itself is really an indicator. Yeah, yeah, you know, we're, yeah. we were living in black and white. Yeah. yeah but yeah. the 70s was a transformative decade. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. And well, because, I mean, joining the European Union is such an enormous force in, in, in Irish history, you know, um, because what it does is, I mean, to be really blunt about it, it's the first thing that makes sense of independence. You know, independence had been an economic disaster. It had been a demographic disaster because people just kept leaving. And as you were saying, David, like, where were they going? They were going to Britain. I mean, the humiliation... You know, yeah. we, we leave the mother country and then we go back, you know? Yeah. I mean, it was really terrible. Um, now, would any, most Irish people have voted to go back? No, they wouldn't. You know, the psychological um, importance is huge and the sense of national pride, I'm not denying any of that, but objectively, like, it's, it's been a failure. What justifies independence and makes it a real thing is being able to join the, the common market. I mean, remember, we're, we're one of only nine countries and we are legally and, and, you know, of the same status as Germany, yeah. you know, yeah. and in France. At the, at the same table. At the same which, table. Which they made always a big deal of. We are at the table. It's at the table. I mean, it was an incredible vindication of Irish sovereignty and Irish nationality. This is what the Brexiteers could never understand. I mean, they thought we'd have to, we would leave the European Union when Britain left. They genuinely did. And for them, you know, being in Europe was uh, humiliation. You know, it was yeah. only being on the same level as France and Germany, you know, is a, is a historic shame, you know. <laughs> Whereas for us, of course, as a small country and as a, as a very raw country, which has all sorts of, you know, problems of historic shame, and yeah. this was a huge thing. And the confidence in the 70s. So, uh, you know, one of the things I remember vividly, though, so 70s, I'm going to UCD, which itself, of course, I suppose we could have picked another big moment, you know, which was, which was 66, Donna O'Malley announcing without telling the government that we're going to have free second-level education. 
I say this to people abroad and they say, surely you mean third level education? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, we did not have second level education free. One of Whitaker's big blind spots, I mean, I've, I've immense admiration for Whitaker, fantastic man. Read economic development, the word does not appear, education. Wow. Doesn't appear. Wow. And in fact, this is one of the ironies that he set in, in motion things that then required, if you're going to get foreign investment, you needed a better educated workforce and that, you know. That's yeah. Different. But even, even in 66, um, O'Malley, who was actually a terrible loss, he drank himself to death. It's really bloody terrible. I mean, he was the real, of that sort of hockey generation, O'Malley was the one who had real vision and courage and imagination, you know. And, and uh, O'Malley, again, it was emigration that got him. You know, he, he just started thinking about not only are we exporting people, we're exporting them with primary education. Yeah. What kind of jobs are they We're exporting them to, to be get, poor. To be poor. Yeah. To fill those, you know, <clears throat> yeah. slots in, in other people's economies. And he just felt a real sense of shame about that. So o O'Malley ambushed his own government. I mean, he sent the word around to journalists. He said, I'm going to make a speech in Limerick or whatever on Saturday night. I think you should be there. And Sunday papers is Minister for Education announces from next year, you know, free second level but, but they did it. And he did it. Well, they had to do it then, you know. Like, they were, they were stuck yeah. with it. Like, because it was such a popular move. I mean, everybody said, fantastic, you know, this is really wonderful. But I'm very much, I mean, I'm older than you are, but, you know, I, I, so I was, I suppose, the, my older brother would have been the first cohort of kids. We would never have gone to secondary school. I would not have probably gone to secondary school, you know. Which is, which, which is an amazing you know? thing. Well, it, it's, it's funny as well, and also the education explains a lot about, as we, as we project forward into the next decades, one of the most fascinating economic papers I've ever read was written by two sociologists from uh, Galway, a guy called Cosgrave, and I'll, I'll get the names out, but they identify that the most successful people in Ireland are the sons and daughters of small farmers yeah. Yeah. from East right. Galway. <laughs> this is no really, very, very specific, yeah. that these are the people identifiable, who have profited most from yes. free education. Yeah. And the paper is about why the rural poor, as, as they were in the 60s, embraced free education. So somebody's always, they've always asked me, for example, around here, when, my, when we were kids, Kula, the local GA team, was a minority sport. And yeah. Dorky United, the football Pleasure. team. I was made captain of the under 13s because my dad was manager. Oh. That was so pathetic, right? Bit of nepotism. That's nepotism, the, typical nepotism team. in Ireland. But people have always asked me, you know, why, why has Kula exploded here in this part of the world? And you can trace it back to the kids who did extremely well in secondary education were, again, from East Galway, larger, but mainly from the Western Seaboard. Yeah. And they became teachers in the 70s. And their kids, teachers, are the doctors and lawyers, and their grandkids yeah. are the people with the Hurleys yeah. here in Dorky. Yeah. So there's been massive social change from education, but it's beautifully quiet, it's non-revolutionary, it's iterative, yeah. it's personal, yeah. but it's real. And yeah. It's changed the country completely. Absolutely. And, and you're absolutely right about the, the 70s being the transformative decade for all of that, because the optimism of the 70s, I mean, was, I suppose I'm coming into adulthood, and because I got secondary school, then I could, you know, get to UCD, um, you know, get a degree. I mean, this was unthinkable, you know. But also, I vividly remember the talk among us was we were, we were going to be the first generation in the history of Ireland that didn't have to emigrate. Yeah. And we didn't. It, it didn't occur to us, you know, compared to every other generation, you know. And we thought it was over. It was never coming back. Um, and... So there's, you've got this, really the 60s is happening in the 70s. Yes, or the 80s. And the 80s. Well, the 80s is a, we'll come, come to the 80s. <laughs> That's a miserable story, I think, in a lot of ways. But, <laughs> but the real optimism, you know. And you've got, um, like, Celtic rock, like horse lips. Being to find ways of being modern and being Barry Irish. Barry Devlin might even be here. Well, I hope <laughs> he is, you know. But, you know, the, 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 yeah. the, this sort of, you know, you don't have to be American but you can have all the American stuff, or you know, yes, you can yeah. you can blend it all together in, in certain sorts of ways. But but you know, but then you get, and this is I think you know why things don't move in a straight line. You know, so this whole story of modernity, modernizing, it's going generally very well up to seventy nine. And in seventy nine, you've got the great oil crash. Um, 
you start getting the downsides of having joined the common market. So the first years are fantastic. Yeah. It's all subsidies. Industries were still protected. There were kind of, you know, grace periods. Really starts to hit in the late 70s because this, these uncompetitive Irish industries yeah. then start to close down. And so the, the Irish working class actually is, is really, the urban working class has hit like a train hitting them, you know, um, because you've got the huge inflation, mass unemployment yeah, starting. Yeah. And that's then when you get this turn back towards the reactionary. Yeah. John Paul arrives in 79, you know, uh, and again, this is like the charisma, you know, this extraordinary, another, like Ali, you know, this extraordinary figure. Uh, I don't know if anybody remembers him, but, you know, I mean, he did seem to, he radiated this sort of power and majesty, you know, he was just a really charismatic person, but a real reactionary, you know, I mean, he's coming, and if you, very interesting look at his speeches, I mean, those, those masses he did were the biggest gathering. Some, well, it's, it's been said, I don't know whether it's true, but that the, the mass in Phoenix Park was the biggest public gathering in Europe since the Second World War. Wow. Because you've a million. But it doesn't surprise me. It's a million I mean, people. it's hard to imagine. I mean, a million people, you know, at a, at a gig. You know? <laughs> exactly. Hope's gig was, was, I mean, and so the whole country is swept by this thing, you know. But um, it's really the end. It's not the beginning. Uh, well, it seems like, well, it's the beginning of a period of reaction. Yeah. Which, which looked at the time, I mean, if you were me at that time, this was really depressing, because you thought, oh, shit. <laughs> you know, because because you, you start getting the abortion issue. Of course, yeah, getting, yeah, yeah. Like, remember, in, in, in 85, a pro- proposition to remove the ban on divorce from the Constitution was defeated two to one. Was I mean, it two to one? Two to one. You know, it's not even, like, close. Yeah, you know? yeah. Like, and this is a complete ban on divorce in a, in a society where marriages are breaking up. Uh, and all sorts uh, of uh, by the way, let's talk about your atheist marriage. Oh, yeah. So I, I just, I thought, uh, this is, I'm not saying my atheist marriage was a major event in Irish uh, life. <laughs> I, I just want to talk about it a little bit, to, just to go back to this thing about doubleness, in a way, right? So I was married in 83, um, 40 years married next year, Jesus, you know. Um, and we'd been living together for four years. You know, we were, we were pretty out there, you know. Um, <laughs> living in sin for four years. Filthy, I... Uh, filthy. Yeah, um, I can't look at you. And Claire, Claire had got a job. She was a teacher. She got a job in a, a, a convent secondary school. So the business of the marriage, right, so... so well, two aspects of it. One is uh, she could not. I mean, you know, she had to invent a story about going to Rome to be married. You know, why was the head nun not being invited <laughs> to the wedding? So we were married in Kildare Street. I think there were 40 non, um, religious. non-religious marriages in Ireland that year. A you know? year? Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, it was a solicitor in Kildare Street. You went up the stairs and he, it was a lovely man, actually. Um, but it was, you know, like... Claire's mother didn't go to the wedding, for example. I mean, it was just so shocking. My, my mother was, was kind of great, but she was really upset. But she, she, she went, you know. Um, but we, we had to solve the problem of you had to put the ban... If you weren't in the church, you know, the bans would be announced in the church, but you, if you weren't in the church, you had to do it. So, of course, we did the... Again, this is the classic doubleness in Ireland. We put an ad in Irish in the Irish press. Fionton O'Tuhil Irishor, Alice Clarny Connell Moonshore. You know, nobody would read it. That was absolutely perfectly fine. You know. In the official first language in the I Devil Lewis newspaper, you wish nobody would read it. <laughs> uh, so the secret wedding, in a way. But um, there was two things fascinating about it. One is uh, a woman's tax status was dependent on her husband, so Claire had to go. To back to the school with her wedding a marriage certificate to you know get the stuff, wow. and the the secretary, the school secretary, took one look at it and just said, "I don't think Sister Elizabeth needs to see this." Put it in an envelope, sent, for it, her. sent it, to, for her. sent it to the department, and the sister said, "Oh, did, did you bring? Oh, 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 sorry, I sent that off." You know, yeah. and this was the kindness, and the, you know, so many people are wonderful kindness. at sailing around yeah, things, yeah. not confronting it. But the other thing is, I became, in 1983, I was already, um, I was arts editor, literary editor of the Sunday Tribune. I was writing, you know, all the time. Did I ever once mention for 35 years that I was married in a registry office? I mean, I've been writing the column in the Irish Times. I'm, you know, the most famous sort of, 
back in 80, you know, whatever. Yeah. Writing column in the Irish Times, all that. Never mentioned. Why? Because I couldn't. Why? Because in 1984, the year after we were married, but the case had already been on from 1982, so right in the middle of our wedding was the Eileen Flynn case. I don't know if anybody remembers that case, older people. So Eileen Flynn was a teacher in New Ross. She got pregnant. She was living with a guy called Richie Roach, who had a bar. Uh, she got pregnant. She went to the head nun in the Holy Faith School. So, you know, kind of similar kind of situation to, to, mm -hmm. to Claire's. And again, very interesting, right? The head nun didn't say, you bold strap, you're fired. She said, oh, don't worry, we'll deal with this. Which is, of course, what they did. I have a brother priest in England. I'll get you over there. You'll go there. He'll get you put up for a while when you have the baby. The baby will be spirited away. And you can come you back. You will come back and you'll just tell the girls you were on a year's retreat, a mission or something. A mission, yeah, 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 yeah. It never happened. That was the way of dealing with these things. You know, don't confront, don't, you know. And the problem was that Eileen Flynn said, I'm not doing that. You know, I'm yeah. not ashamed. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in a relationship. His marriage had broken up. This is the love of my life. I intend to live with this man the rest of my life for having children. There was no, you know, she was a terrific teacher. All the kids loved her. We loved her. Um, and the nun said, out, you're sacked. Right? Wow. Uh, and she was fired and she took the case to court. Uh, it went to the district court or the circuit court first. The circuit court ruling says, um, it, actually the judge says to her, you are very, very lucky you're not in an Islamic society because you would be stoned and more or less saying, good enough for you. You know, this yeah, is yeah. a judge in our courts, you know. And then she appeals it to the High Court and the High Court, High Court of Ireland says um, the nuns were absolutely right, absolutely justified because she was giving the scandal. High the High Court, Declan Costello, the he famous of, liberal he of, he from the, the liberal, 1960s. He of the, he of the <laughs> liberal Fine Gael, He judge. of the just society. The just society, you know, uh, says they're absolutely This right. is the Afghan relatively just society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it was saying that, um, and he says, you, you, and the phrase used was, you, you have a lifestyle not in keeping with the Catholic ethos of the school. And I use that word lifestyle, meaning what happens outside of school is our business. So that meant every gay teacher, every, every yeah. teacher. And of course, it's deeply misogynistic, right? Because how do you prove that somebody is having sex? The only real way you can prove it, unless they would have set up cameras if they could, but they, yeah. you know, they didn't, was, was pregnancy, right? So, so it really only applied to female teachers. But that was the law of the land. And it still, by the way, is the law of the land. It's never been overturned. Now, I don't think you would get away with it now, but nonetheless, you know, that's hanging over. So I, I just want to talk about this kind of thing about the, you know, I'm, I'm talking about the doubleness, but we live the doubleness. Yeah, like you yourself lived the doubleness. I lived it myself. You yourself you know, lived it. You I have to be very careful in terms, you know, and I never mentioned, and it would have been an interesting thing to write about even, you know, just the thing yeah. get married and rest jobs and all that sort of stuff, but, but I, I never mentioned it uh, until 2012 when, when Claire uh, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering uh, Shannon and I got married in the registry office actually this day, it's our anniversary. Oh, and we got invited in the registry office in Galway. And the registry office in Galway is in the mortuary. <laughs> I swear to God, the registry office in Galway is in the mortuary of the hospital uh, on the Dublin Road as you come in. And uh, Shan and I got married uh, in the registry office and she was, it was, and it was, it's the most ugly building and is the most unprepossessing place. I mean, everything signaled, don't get married here <laughs> and don't bring your ma, right? That's the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And I remember and over the registry document, right, the big ledger, Shans from Belfast obviously is a proclamation of the Republic. Oh yeah. And she breaks out in a rash. Oh, and yeah. then he's just like, oh my God. But I do remember it was, it was very, very clear that, you know, even then, that was 1999. Yeah. yeah. It was not to be, it was, everything was put in your way not, not to, be, to do so. Not, not to everything was put in your yeah, way not to yeah, do so. Yeah. We're nearly out of time. I want to just end, we, we decided we'd finish on river dance. River dance, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, it might just, seem again very trivial, but, but you know, um, I don't, I don't know if people remember it, like, but the, the gasp all over Ireland when river dance started as the um, Interville Act in the Eurovision Song Contest. Those were the years when, um, 
you know, I, I, like it really mattered to Ireland that we won the Eurovision Song yes, Contest. I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, 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 you have to remember just just how fragile our collective ego was. You know. Um, <laughs> And we kept winning it every year. It was, it was like a great national event, you know. Uh, and, but it was getting to a point where, like, oh shit, here we go, one of the year sack out. Like, what are we going to do? Uh, and Moya, Moya Doherty had this fantastic idea, you know, to like, let's do something with Irish dancing, you know. I mean, I remember Irish dancing, like it was the most humiliating, terrible thing. Yeah, yeah. Nothing uh, moved from the Nothing moved from the, you know, like exactly. the, the I mean, actually, of course, beautiful and brilliant, but, but the versions of it that we got were so full of awfulness, you know, and anti-body, you know, it was the most <laughs> anti-body dancing you could possibly do. It's like, yeah, dancing without sex, you know, an Irish thing. Yeah. Exactly. How can yeah, you dance yeah. without anything yeah, sexual? Yeah, yeah. yeah, And then Michael Flatley goes, you know, with that flowing white... With the Putin-esque chest. You know, yeah, and... And Jean Butler with legs. <laughs> she had legs, I swear to God, you know, with, and, and a short skirt, and, and they were fantastic dancers, you know. And the music was brilliant, and it was sexy. And, but of course, there was something quite profound about it, which is, of course, they were both Irish Americans. You know, Jean's from upstate New York, and, and Flatley's from Boston. Um, and they'd learned their Irishness in America. Yes. Know? And so the whole story of the transformation really is about us dealing with America, essentially. You know, you know, Europe and Britain are big things in it, but economically, of course, it's, you know, the, the multinational companies that are coming in here are, are American, you know, and it's us learning to be part of an American world. And you think, how did we do this without, well, I was going to say without going crazy, maybe we, we did go crazy in the 80s, actually. The 80s is a kind of complete collective nervous breakdown. But how do we begin to reconcile it is by realizing actually that it's not binary, you know, that actually our identity, because of mass migration, this American culture is also contains a lot of us. And so we're sort of recycling, we're bringing it back on this kind of fluidity. Uh, because, you know, um, I, I, I spent the, that period in a lot of the, the late 90s, I was drama critic of the Daily News in New York, you know. Uh, so Broadway was my beat, you know. Yeah. And the big statue in Broadway, like, is George M. Cohan, you know. And I, I always thought Kohan, he's obviously Jewish, you know. Yeah. And he's at least Kohan. No, he was Kohan. Kohan from Kerry, you know. Like, he, he learned his, his dancing. He really invented what we think of as Broadway dancing, you know. And he did it by putting together African-American dancing and Irish dancing. Wow. You know, he was, he was an Irish dancer. His, his father was a piper, you know. It's an astonishing yeah. thing, you know. And he was one of the four Kohans. There were kids who, you know, did Irish dancing. His father played pipe. And, they, you know, there was a big Irish uh, entertainment market. And then he learned. So... You know, it's, it's actually very moving in a way, which is this sort of Riverdance kind of Broadway-ized Irish dancing. Yeah, absolutely. But, but it had a history. It was kind of something which was coming back. And th- that moment, I mean, we, we screwed up that moment. But remember, Riverdance is coming. You have the peace process. You have this sort of beginnings of the Celtic Tiger. Um, you know, and, and, you know, the sense of confidence, the sense of it's suddenly okay to be Irish. <laughs> Absolutely. It just, it's a sense of liberation. It just begins to feel like all that stuff is, is, is going. Yeah. Now, it's also dark, right? So, so uh, you know, not too far off that, you get States of Fear, Mary Raftery's astonishing series on the industrial schools. We start confronting the past. We start confronting the Magdalene Laundries, the mother, mother and baby homes, all, and the abuse and all. You know, so there's a dark side yep. to this. But we're only able to confront it because maybe we've reached the point where there's enough confidence that we can, we can do it. Now, we do screw this up, of course, you know, with, with you know, the Calcutta going mad. But nonetheless, something has survived from all of that, you know, which, which is we're one of the few countries in the Western world that does not have a big anti-immigrant far-right party. Absolutely. And the reason we don't is because somehow we remember that actually multiple identity is us, you know, because of, because of our history of migration. You know, this, you know we, we still want our cousins in America to feel Irish. Absolutely. And therefore, it's not so big a leap to think, well, the Polish person who has come here, of course they're entitled to feel Polish and Irish. We're not threatened by it, you know. We don't, we don't feel that we have to do the Muhammad Ali thing of saying, oh, you're really Irish, you know. Yeah, you're <laughs> messing around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, that, that actually our sense of, of um, confidence is, is rooted in this idea that actually you don't lose it. Because it was all about, for so much of my lifetime, was if you don't stamp on it, 
Yeah. If you don't keep it down, it'll go crazy and it'll go somehow. You know, that the, the, the Catholic repression, all of that wasn't about confidence. Of course, it was about the exact opposite. Yeah, you know, it insecurity was about and fragility and terror. There's so little here that, that, you know, if we don't have this very rigid idea of what it is to be Irish, then we won't be Irish at all. And actually, the, you know, the irony is we're, well, I think we're much more Irish now than we were when I was born because it's much more, it's more honest, it's more open. We know who we are to a much greater extent. I, I chose this title, you know, We Don't Know Ourselves. I didn't realize it doesn't work anywhere else. Like the book came out in America and it was done well in America. <laughs> Nobody realizes what, what that title. But you know, in Ireland, hey, the, the you wouldn't know yourself. Oh, we don't know. We got a new lawnmower. We don't know ourselves. You know, it's like, <laughs> I mean, it's like you know. Uh, <laughs> um, so it's, it, it's meant to be the sort of pun, you know, of both of, and actually we don't know ourselves in that sense. I mean, I, you know, I've been, um, you know, I did a thing with Roy Foster, the historian, and he reminded me he'd written a book in the 90s, which listed the, um, the boosters and the begrudgers of Celtic, Celtic Tiger Ireland. He was all in favour of, he was a booster, but I was listed as number one on the begrudgers, you know. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sort of a serial begrudger, but I don't begrudge any of this bigger change, you know. I think we can actually really be very proud of it and, and, and think, you know, actually, we, you know, overall, oh, yeah. we've managed it, you know. Uh, and, and, um, but the other side of it was this, we don't know ourselves. I mean, that, you know, that actually coming, getting rid of that compartmentalization, that ability to, to, to not know what we know, you know. Uh, I think maybe we're getting closer to being able to know what we know. <laughs> I just love it. It's, 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 the, it's the image of the new lawnmower. And not, <laughs> we don't know ourselves. Fitting our two, ladies and gentlemen. Now, while I have you, it's the summer. You've got a choice. You can sit in your Swiss, hang out, do nothing, have a few pints, take it handy. Or you can use the summer to learn economics with me on Patreon. We have two courses, the courses that I give in Trinity, macroeconomic courses, cycles, booms, busts, history, the history of money, all sorts of good stuff, right? We've got the notes, we've got the reading list, we've got everything. We'll take you through it. A very fine way, if you're going after a stroll, just put the headphones in and listen and learn economics with me. That's economics with me, patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams.